Verbally Effective with Ina Esco is an interview-style podcast that intersects art, culture, politics, and entertainment with a Memphis focus. With producer Sanaa Marie, each week I'm joined by a featured guest with roots in Memphis. Verbally Effective delves into each guest's personal journey to uncover the incredible stories fueling their purpose, the highs and lows of their pursuits, and how through their passion... They are moving the culture forward. Be sure to follow Verbally Effective and Ina Esco on Instagram. Also, download the Verbally Effective podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Don't forget to check out the website and submit to be a guest at verballyeffective.com. Breaking news out of over thousands of applicants, the Verbally Effective podcast has been selected to showcase at the 2020 South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. Ina Esco will be interviewing Taylor to the Stars and Memphis native Rich Fresh on the big stage. Hey, it's Ina Esco, the mastermind behind the Verbally Effective Podcast. And let me tell you something, 2020 is going to be lit with some amazing transparent journeys. I just want to wish you guys a happy and prosperous new year. Hello, hello, hello. This is John Corns, one of your favorite realtors and overall people in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm hanging out with Ina Esco on the Verbally Effective Podcast. This is Bobby OJ. I'm verbally effective because God made me that way. Originally from Batesville, Mississippi, Bobby OJ started his radio career in 1972 at WRMA Montgomery, Alabama. When he was only 18 years old, he went on to work at WNOV and WAWA in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, KYOK in Houston, Texas, KKDA in Dallas, Texas, and WBMX in Chicago. In 1983, Bobby landed at WDIA as program director and morning personality. He is the winner of 10 Billboard Magazine Awards for Best Radio Personality and Program Director and the winner of many other radio awards. Bobby OJ has no plans on ever retiring from the mic. Verbally effective, your double E, Ina Esco in the building. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Verbally Effective podcast and Happy New Year. And you know what? I'm kicking off the top of the year with a radio legend. Do you hear me? I am talking about none other than the program director and radio personality over there at WZIA. I know I don't say it like him, but WZIA, Mr. Bobby OJ. What's going on? How you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And you know what? You are like the perfect guest to kick off the new year because you have so much energy. Yeah, I appreciate And you that. keep, you know, your listeners on WDIA crunk yeah. all the time. I try to. Yes, yeah. you do. Because <laughs> I listen to you in the morning. Thank you. Thank and you. And you always give me something to think about. Thank you. 
before I head into the workhouse. All right. Because you already know we got a lot to do when we get to work. Absolutely. So Absolutely. it's good that you give us all the information that we need. But we're going to start at the beginning, your roots. I know that you are originally from Batesville, Mississippi. Panola County, Batesville, Mississippi. Wow, that is amazing. You know, my yeah. husband is from Batesville, Mississippi. No. I'm married to a Batesville, Mississippi. Are Pano- you for real? I'm for real. Do you look? Do you know all of the uh, Lamars? Yes, and I mean I know some Coles. I know. Now I'm related to the Coles. You might be my. Your husband cousin. is probably my cousin. I bet so. Yeah. Wow. How was it growing up in Batesville? Uh, it was it was uh boring. It was boring, <laughs> even like as a child growing up. Yeah. See, I was you know I was uh, uh, raised uh, for the first 14 years of my life. I was raised kind of like. Um, on a farm. Okay. You know, my parents were sharecroppers and so you know, we were raised out in the out in country the boondocks. Yeah, out in the country part, you yeah. know. And uh so that was the first fourteen years mm-hmm. and uh you know, it was I didn't know it was boring then. Right. Well but- I kinda sorta knew it was boring, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, as I look back on it, I'm happy that I was raised that way. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because uh, with my personality, if I had been born in the city, ain't no telling where I'd be. Ain't right no now. telling because you're so serious <laughs> with yourself. Cause, now, I'd what, have been getting into something, you know. Okay, <laughs> now what high school did you go to? Pad Lane High School. Pad Lane. Yeah, it's high no school. longer there. I graduated in 1970, and when I graduated, they tore the school down. Dying, you left your mark, yep, didn't it? I left my marks. Yep. Wow. 1970 was the last class to graduate from Pad Lane High School. Dang, why did they end it that year? Because, well, I don't know why they ended it that year, but uh, about three years before that, a lot of the students uh, had been transferred. Well, some of the students had had been transferred to the previously all-white school, Mm -hmm. South Panola, which, of course, now you know is a big deal because of the football team. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so I I guess the school district probably felt like, you know, we've had a a three-year test so, you know, being in school with these colored kids, with mm-hmm. these black kids, okay. So they decided to shut it down, and, and that was it. And so we, we were the last class. Now, what were you involved in as a high school student? Mess. Mess? No, no, like I mean, what? you know, I was, I, was, I was trying to be a player. You oh, know, I was trying okay. to get girlfriends and all of that, even though I had no car. Didn't okay. have no money. <laughs> but uh, the last year of high school, I uh, traveled with the football team. Okay. Uh, taking photos. I was the uh, photographer. Wow. Yeah, and uh, well, I messed up a lot. You know, because back then we had the Polaroids. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> I messed up a lot of film. <laughs> the reason why I was able to do that is because my uh, my friends played football, mm-hmm. and so I you know I wanted to hang out with them, and the and the coach agreed to let me do that. Mm-hmm. So I got a chance to travel with them and hang out with them. And I bet the girls was just right there, right? Yeah, yeah, they were, but not for me. <laughs> <laughs> they were there for the football players. <laughs> wow. So so did you love photography back then? Uh, or you was just trying to get by the girls by the Yeah, place? yeah, I was just trying to, you know, do something because it was boring and, you know, and my friends were going to be going off, you know, playing football, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to be sitting around the house, you know, with nothing to do. So, uh, so I just hung out with them and. Wow. You know, it gave me something to do. Interesting. Bobby yeah. was a player player. Now, what <laughs> happened after you graduated from Patton Lane High School? Um, the day after I graduated, my father put me on the Greyhound bus and sent me to Milwaukee. Wow. Yeah. What was in Milwaukee? Uh, my, 
my brothers and sisters, my, my older brothers, uh, well, two of my older brothers and uh, two of my older sisters. Mm-hmm. And so my father told me it was nothing in baseball. He didn't have to tell me that, of course. <laughs> you know, he said, it's nothing here. And, you know, you need to get out of here and get a life for yourself. And so um, I graduated on Sunday. Monday morning, I was on a Greyhound bus. Wow, yeah, like that. I was 16 years old. I was not even, you know. You graduated at 16? I graduated at 16 in 1970. Wow. Yeah. So when you hit Milwaukee, I bet that yeah. was a culture shock, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, well, I had been there uh, twice before. I went there when I was 14, mm-hmm. and then and I went there when I was 15. So each each summer, uh, I would go there. And so when I graduated, you know, I, I went summer of 68, summer of 69, mm-hmm. and so when I graduated in 1970, you know, I went back to live. So you were already kind of preparing yourself yeah. to go. You already knew yeah. you were going. There. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So did you get a job when you got to Yeah, as a matter of fact, I got a summer job. Um, you know, because back then they had all those summer jobs. The uh, Black Panthers had um, those summer job programs. Mm. So I, you know, hooked up with them and got a summer job program. Uh, we were cleaning up parks and doing things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kept that in 1968. And then when I went back in 1969, uh, I got another summer job. Uh, working as um, doing basically the same thing. And so when I graduated from high school at 16, I went back. This time, the summer job, I was working at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee campus, as a janitor. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I did such a good job, I told the, the guys over the program, I said, well, the guys that, that ran the, uh, the uh, program at the uh, university, I said, look, man, I'm a high school graduate. I'm 17. I can't go to work in the factory because I was, I was going to be 18 that August. Mm-hmm. I graduated in high uh, uh, uh Well, I was going to be, yeah, I was, I was, I was going to be 18 in August. Okay. And so what happened was I, um, I told the guy that I was, you know, needed a job because I couldn't work in the factory at that time. So he told me to go ahead and he was going to, and, and so they hired me. Wow. Yeah. Had a job making that money. Making yeah. that money. Making making the money. <laughs> and so, um, no, I made a mistake. I was seventeen. That I was I was seventeen because I was going to be seventeen in August. So I worked at the university from the time I was seventeen to the time I was eighteen. Okay. When I turned eighteen, um, I was able to get a job in the radio business. But we can get to that later. I'll tell you about that. Oh wow! Yeah. Now you said that you were working with the summer program for the Black Panthers. Yeah, you know, uh, they they had these summer youth programs mm-hmm. that uh, the Black Panthers in Chicago and, and Milwaukee and I guess in other cities they were working with the government trying to help young folks stay off the streets. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, that's how I was able to get that, get into that program. Did they? Did you work in a, like a close capacity to them? Like, did they make an impact? No, I never. In? I really never saw them. Okay, they were just kind of over the. Yeah, program. they were just over the program. Okay, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you young yeah. in Milwaukee? Yeah. You know, did you have like a, a set of friends you hung? Yeah, out well, you know, with? I had a bunch of cousins there. Oh yeah, the family. Yeah, there. so um, my cousin Walter and I, uh, you know, we were basically the same age. Mm-hmm. So you know we would we spend a lot of time out on the beach because you know Milwaukee's right there oh, on that yeah. lakefront. Wow. So you know we would you know do all those summer jobs and then spend time on the beach. Yeah, and yeah. those winters are just yeah. Ooh, well, see, I was not there in the winter time until I you know graduated okay. from high school. Okay. So, you know I was there mainly in the summertime in uh, in '68 and '69. 
Okay. I didn't know about the winter until like <laughs> 70 or 71. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. So how did you transition into radio, Mr. OJ? How did that come about? Okay, so 1965, my cousin Melvin Jones mm-hmm. uh, was working at a radio station in Chattanooga. And Melvin is like maybe 10 years older than I am. So he was a grown man at that time. And so uh, Melvin came home. It was a hot summer day in 1965. And when you're working in the cotton fields, you know, working in the fields, you know, um, you get a break at lunch. Mm -hmm. So at noontime, we would go home and grab a bite to eat because the cotton field was not very far from where we, you know, lived. Mm -hmm. And so while we were at the house, Melvin, who's my first cousin, my dad and his dad were brothers, Melvin came by the house in a brand new 1965 Mustang. Oh, way. Burgundy. Mm. So here was a hot summer day. <laughs> All the black folks I knew were working. Mm-hmm. They weren't riding around in no brand new car. Mm-mm, Melvin pulled pull up in the thing. Yeah, thang he pulled thang. up and then he had, a, you know, he had a nice looking woman with him and everything. Okay. So we standing there, you know, lunch break. Mm-hmm. Getting ready to, you know, go back to the cotton fields and finish up the rest of the day. You know, I mean, the cotton hadn't grown at that point. We were just out there, what they call chopping the cotton, making sure that we get the weeds away from it. And so uh, I'm standing there watching him, and he's talking. Everybody's happy to see him and everything. And so my daddy said to him, he said, you know, what do you do for, he said, what do you do for a living? And Melvin said, well, I talk on the radio. I'm a disc jockey. Mm. So I'm standing there thinking to myself, hmm, <laughs> maybe I could do that. Right. And so this was in 1965. So uh, in 1968, well, in 1965, I started practicing. After Melvin left, I started listening to WDIA mm-hmm. because we could get WDIA and where I lived. Yeah. And I started listening to all the DJs on WDIA. I started practicing, practicing. And in 1968, high school teacher asked all of us, you know, what we had planned to do mm-hmm. and I, with our lives. And I said, I want to be a disc jockey. Mm. And uh, he, he gave me encouragement. He said, yeah, I bet you'd be good too. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I started, I did realize one thing, that, they, the, that the disc jockeys could read good. Mm-hmm. They could read very well. So I started reading everything. Mm-hmm. I was grabbing all the little magazines I could get up, get my hands on and newspapers. And I did that. For like the last three years of high school, I'm just reading stuff, reading stuff, and um, I uh, in the summer of 1968, there was a disc jockey on the station in Milwaukee, WNOV. His name was Cecil Hale, mm-hmm. and I listened to him that summer, and so I started, you know, mimicking him. Mm-hmm. So when I went back in 1969, uh, you know, I, I kind of had it down. You know, he, he was one of those kind of guys. He he had a a very distinctive sound. Cecil Hill, baby, and WNOV. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I just thought this guy was the coolest cat in the world. Yeah. So, the last day I was there in 1969 before I came, before I was scheduled to come back home to do my last year of high school, I called the radio station, and uh, the you know when the when the disc jockey answered the phone, it was not Cecil Hill. It was a guy named Bill. Uh, 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 it was a guy named. Uh, Bill Taylor. So I said, hey, I said, I can talk like Bill. I can talk like Cecil Frazier. He was like, let me hear you. Mm-hmm. And I started doing it. So he called the other disc jockeys to the, to the phone. He said, man, listen to this guy. Mm-hmm. 
And I did it again. He said, how old are you? And I told him, and he said, hey, can you come by the radio station? Wow. We want to play a trick on Cecil. I said, man, I'm leaving, going back to Mississippi in the morning. Mm. He said, when are you coming back? I said, next year. Mm. And so they said, when you come back, please come by the radio station. But I never did. You never did? No, I was too, I was too afraid. Oh, my. I was intimidated. Okay. You know? Okay. And so, um, uh, you know, I so but you know, I just kept working on my craft and working on my craft. And uh, one day my older brother asked me, you know, you know, did I want to pursue the radio thing, you know. And I told him I wanted to go to broadcast school, but I didn't have no money. You know, even I was working, I, you know, I was working at the university, but I was, I was still not 18 years old at that time. Mm-hmm. So my brother told me that he would uh, get me a, a, a loan. Okay. So he got me a $1,200 loan. Go to broadcasting school. To go to broadcasting school. That, that's, that's what it cost. Awesome. That's a good brother. The Institute of Broadcast Arts, yes. In Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. So what did what did that school entail? Like, how well, was it set up? You know, you, you just, you know, you basically what they did was, all they did basically was just teach you the basics. In other words, they would, um, it was kind of like a real school. They had books, mm-hmm. you know, about broadcasting. We had a real teacher. Mm-hmm. It was about 13 of us in the class. Mm-hmm. And the main thing is that, you know, back then you had to have a license to be on the radio. Mm-hmm. It was called the FCC, third mm-hmm. class license. And so the main thing was to get everybody to pass the test. Okay. And so you would have to, so, you know, then they would teach you about the equipment. Mm-hmm. They would teach you the rules and regulations of FCC. They would teach you how to write commercials, teach you how to read commercials. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, we had a real studio mm-hmm. in the, in the uh, school. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, but the ultimate goal was to get your license, and you had to go to Chicago to take the test for your license. Okay. And so after we had been in school, I guess maybe, I don't know, six, seven months, mm-hmm. they took us down to Chicago on a bus. Mm-hmm. And we went in there, we took the test. You got your license. I couldn't believe it. I know you felt so good. I couldn't believe it. I felt great. Man, I just couldn't believe it. Did the school build your confidence? Well, you know, I'm a Leo. Oh, so, well, yeah, I'm very confident. So, you know, I had confidence when I was a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like that, you know. Mm-hmm. You know I, used, I, used to sing in, I, I used to sing in high school. I used to sing at the talent shows in high school. Oh, you can sing. No, I can't sing. <laughs> no, but I thought I could. What did you used to sing at oh, the uh, talent show? Wilson Pickett shows? and David Ruffin. Give me a little bit they of They were rough. my favorite. Give yeah, I would, I would do stuff like uh, I Wish It Would Rain, you know. Yeah. Oh, so badly, I want to go outside. You, you see them all off key yeah. as it is. But, but and guess <laughs> you what? You sound good, I had a I had a piano player, a guy named Neil Blackburn. My childhood friend, we we picked cotton together down down baseball. He was also a distant cousin, mm-hmm. and but he's no longer living. And the drummer was a guy named Larry Battle. Mm-hmm. Now Larry is still living, and he lives down in some parts of Texas. I want to say Corp- Corpus Christi. I well, oh, that's that's not far from where I'm from. I'm from Beaumont, Texas. Yeah, yeah. Corpus know, Christi is yeah, right down the. I know Beaumont. K J T. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I know. Uh, one of my uh, one of my uh, 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 former coworkers, her, her dad, uh, was a big disc jockey in that town. Mm-hmm. Guy named Boy Brown. Boy Brown. Yeah, that yeah. Sounds familiar. Yeah, he was he was a big disc jockey in in, in that town. And uh, yeah. his daughter Bunny and I worked together 
uh, in Houston back in the 70s. That is yeah. awesome. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I would sing at these little talent shows. Uh-huh. I tried to act, too. I was, look, look, look. Were you in a play? I was in a play. Okay. One time. What play was that? I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what happened. <laughs> what happened, Bobby? So, you know, you always got your friends, you know, who's going to sit back in the audience. And they're going to, you know, try to get you to mess, mess your lines up or mess something no. up, right? okay. So I'm standing backstage waiting on my turn to go on stage. Trying to be in character, too. Yeah, so I'm waiting. I got this thing all down. My cue comes. I walk on stage, and I make the mistake of doing this. <laughs> and when I looked in the audience, everybody was doing this. No, threw you off. I just stood there. You froze. <laughs> I froze. In the play. <laughs> you know, in the movie, the, in the new edition movie, yeah. how Bobby Brown walked out there and froze. Yes. <laughs> that was oh, me. My. So I just oh, stood my. there and looked at everybody. Mm-mm. And then I just turned around and walked off stage. That's the last time I tried that. Mm-mm. But when it was time for me to sing, I'd get up there and grab that mic. Ready. Yeah, I thought I was doing something. Yeah, it looked yeah. like you got into character, like you get into character. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I can get into character, but hell, I can't sing. Oh wow, <laughs> wow. So you you already you know had the confidence. You had everything to make a primetime disc jockey. Yeah. When was your opportunity to go on air? Um. Okay, so uh, in broadcasting school. Uh, in order to get jobs, you have to make these audition tapes. Mm-hmm. And so they give you a book this thick with all the radio stations in the country, mm-hmm. you know, in every state, every radio station. Mm-hmm. So me, having the mind that I had, I said, well, I, uh, you know, there's no use of me sending a tape to Chicago or Memphis or any place like that because I don't have any experience. So I started sending tapes to places like Florence, South Carolina. Mm. Huntsville, Alabama, Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm thinking, okay, you know, you know, I'm going to get a job in, a, in a, you know, in some place like that. A and smaller so, market. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I sent tapes to everywhere. I mean, it took me about a year to get a job. I'm sending tapes everywhere, mm-hmm. and everybody will say the same thing: you don't have any experience. So what I did was, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> what you do? So what I did was because, see, at the broadcasting school, we were making up call letters. WK, WXYZ. Or so. Mm-hmm. so I said, a program director is going to know this is not a real radio station. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I made an audition tape using a real radio station in Milwaukee, WNOV. Mm-hmm. So I made the tape and I sent them out. Mm-hmm. I sent one to a radio station in Montgomery, Alabama, WRMA in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And... This must have, I don't know, this must have been somewhere around February mm-hmm. of 1972. 72. March of 1972, I get this phone call. And I, and I was, you know, working at night as a janitor at the university. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some, one or two of the guys used to tease me all the time. These, these were grown men saying, because I, I used to play disc jockey, you know, when I was working. And they would start teasing me about it. It would be like, man, you ain't going to be nothing but a janitor, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And these were older guys who were losers. Mm-hmm. You know, I just blew them off. And so when I got the phone call, the guy said, hey, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm Tracy Larkin, the program director from WRMA. I got the tape. Man, I want to hire you. Wow. Over the phone? He called me over the phone. <laughs> and he said, I got the tape. I was staying with my brother. He called me at my, at my, at my brother's house, the same brother that sent me to broadcasting school, mm. my brother Ezel. And I was like, he's, you know, this is like maybe like a, Wednesday or Thursday, mm-hmm. he said, can you be here Monday? 
In Alabama. In Alabama. Now, <laughs> remember now, 1972, you know, there was a lot going on in 1972 with the civil rights and all that. Mm-hmm. George Wallace was still raising hell. He was running for president back then, too, in 1972. Yeah. So I, I said, yeah, I can be there. <laughs> he said, can you start Monday? I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never been on the radio in my life. Mm-hmm. I just practiced, you know, never been live. So I went into my job at the university, you know, told them I had a job in the radio business, you know. Through the deuces. Yeah, you know. They, <laughs> Thank you. You know, they hugged me and said, hey, if you, if you need a job, you're welcome to have it back. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, I had the little money I had saved, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it was about 400 bucks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I hit my sister up for some cash and my brother. And then I uh, uh, got went, went to Greyhound, got me a, a Greyhound ticket. I left Milwaukee on that, um, I left on that Saturday. I left Milwaukee on that Saturday, and I got to Montgomery, Alabama, on Sunday afternoon. Wow. Monday morning, I'm supposed to be on the radio. So I get to Montgomery, and uh, the guy picks me up at the bus station. Mm-hmm. He takes me to the radio station so I can get familiar with all the equipment. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I had to get a hotel room and everything. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so he said, you know, Monday afternoon at two o'clock is yours, baby. Oh, a prime time. Spot. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah, I've never I've always done afternoons or mornings. Mm, always. Always, except with one time I'll we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> um but I uh uh so that, that afternoon, two o'clock, I'm at the radio station. I'll get to the radio station nine o'clock that morning. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm ready to roll. You ready? I'm ready to roll. <laughs> First radio yes. job. First radio new job. New city. But new city. I mean, in a place like Montgomery, Alabama. And right. back then they had two radio stations. You know, back then it was just AM. It was no mm-hmm. FM. Mm-hmm. And so the radio station that I was going to was the big dog in town. Mm-hmm. But get this. Here's a piece of history for you. Mm. Sunday afternoon, I'm walking in the radio station. The guy's bringing me in to show me around. Okay. Tom Joyner is coming out of the radio oh, station. Oh, the fly job. He's coming out of the radio station with his wife. Wow. See, back then, radio stations were, they were always alive. Mm-hmm. You can go to a radio station at 1 o'clock in the morning, yeah. and, you know, and you're going to see four or five people hanging around a radio station. Yeah, 24-7. 24-7. I mean, yeah. that's how we used to roll, you know? Yeah. And so that's when I first met Tom in 1972. On your first day. My first day, he was coming out of the radio station, you know, and we shook hands and everything, and uh, we've known each other since since, since then. Wow. So that Monday afternoon, I I, t- I turned the microphone on, you know, and I didn't know on a live radio station, when you turn the microphone on, you know, it's you're going to get that echo, yeah. that sound. Yeah. <laughs> you, were, you weren't ready for that, Bobby. I was not ready for it. I was like, what the... <laughs> Like, this didn't happen in broadcasting school. I mean, I must have been sounding. I was going a mile a minute. Puppy OJ. I don't even, I mean, I just, if someone, I just wish someone had a tape of me from back then. Man, that's probably the funniest stuff in the world. You don't have any of your old tapes? I don't have any of my old tapes. My older brother may have some old tapes of me. You got to get that from him. Yeah, I'm going to ask him if he has any, any tapes of me. And so I was in Montgomery uh, from March until late May. Mm-hmm. And then I got a call from Milwaukee. The guy said, hey, man, we got a job opening at WNOV. Now, I'm getting ready. I've been on the radio for, for three months. I'm getting ready to go from this small market back to a large market. Wow. And he said they gave me the afternoon shift. 
in Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. So you weren't in Montgomery no time. Like maybe three months. Wow. Did you make an impact while you were in Montgomery? No, probably not. But well, that, but yeah. some of the people who uh you know, who were listening back then, uh, you know, some of them remember me and here's why. I was at an event uh here in Memphis and a lady came up to me and said, I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. I remember you. Mm. Guy owns a radio station in Pensacola, Florida. His name is Bob Hill. Um, he told me that he had, now he told me he had some tapes of me too. Mm. So yeah, he was a fan. Tapes. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, of course I made some fans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you were, when you first started in Montgomery, those three months, mm-hmm. I mean, were you that, you know, vibrant personality? Yeah, that always. We know you, okay, yeah, so always. always been. Always. Okay. Upbeat, you know, yeah. rocking. You know, yeah. I turned, you know, I'm not, I'm not, unlike most DJs, I came up in an era where if you were in the studio, people knew it. Right. Because the music was up. Mm-hmm. But you can walk around, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the studios in today's radio and you won't hear any music. Mm-mm. You know, you walk in the studio and it's like, you on the air, man? Be yeah. like, yeah, I got the music down, man. It's so uh, different. It's different. I mean, I keep the music crunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, you know, yeah. and so... You know, that's the way it was back in those days. Matter of fact, I worked at one radio station where we had strobe lights in the studio. Oh. We we would have the lights down, you know, the lights would be down and, you know, be we 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 would set set the mood and have strobe lights in the studio. <laughs> A party. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So they called you yeah. to go back to Milwaukee. Right. Now right. what made them do that? They remembered well, you? They were yes. like, Remember remember yes. Bobby L. James? Yes, yes. A guy named Bill Taylor mm-hmm. called me and said, hey, I got a job for the you. The one that you called was yes. like, hey, I can sound like Yes, okay. exactly. Okay, wow. And yep. you had the afternoon drive Gave again? Me the afternoon drive for a quick minute, then they put me in morning drive. Did you, Which one did you like better? Well, you know, it was really a toss-up. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I prefer mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, but the crazy part about WNOV, I'd only been there for a couple of months, and they made me the program director. You because and you were only like seventeen, eighteen. No, no, no. That, that I was, I was, I was uh, going on nineteen then. Okay, still a teenager. Yes. Still a teenager. They made you the program director they made back me the program then. Director, yes. And which is okay. I do what I I'll do. I'll do it. Yeah. How was the money back then? Uh, back then, a program director at a station like that could make twenty eight, twenty nine thousand dollars a year. What? Yeah, that's nineteen. But that was big money back then. Oh Lord, yes, nineteen seventy two. Yes. Twenty eight, twenty nine. Yeah. Days a year. Yeah. So you plus, you, plus, plus the fact you know you you know you're doing gigs on the side. You you oh, yeah. you know, I mean you know you're doing two and three gigs a week. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean hell, you know back then you know hell if you made usually guys were making seventy five dollars a night. Wow. You know, but th- this is nineteen seventy two. Nineteen seventy two. So yeah. this is like right after segregation was and, going well, yes. on. I mean it was yes. so close. So yeah. How did that time period affect? your job as a radio jock. Did you talk about those issues? No. You no, all weren't I, I allowed talk, to or you didn't want to? No, I didn't want to. I was just, I was jive talking. Oh, t- Rhythm uh, yeah, and rhyming yeah, and jive yeah, talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's what I dealt dealt with. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. you know I, I didn't talk about the kind of stuff I talk about now until maybe 1980, until 1980, and I'll tell you about that. Okay, yeah. wow. So how long were you on in Milwaukee? I was in Milwaukee at this station uh, for about, for about a year. About and I and I made I made I made a mistake. 
What did you do? Here's a mistake that got me fired. You got fired? I got fired. I've only been fired twice. Okay. Here's a mistake that got me fired. Oh, I'll take that back. I've been fired three times. Um, The mistake that got me fired was that there was a guy named Jack Harris. Jack had a lot of radio experience, and he was from Minneapolis. And he was he and Melvin worked together at our com- at our competitor across town mm-hmm. station called Wawa W A W A, and so Jack was not full time. Jack, even though he was a grown man with a lot of experience, Jack needed a job. Mm. So my cousin Melvin asked me to talk to him. So I talked to Jack because I liked him. He had been hanging he had been hanging out with me and Melvin, mm-hmm. and so I hired him. Jack was there for about two months, and he, he and he had my job. How did that happen? He he basically. <laughs> <laughs> I know podcast. He was scheming. He was scheming from the Jack beginning. Jack was scheming. But your cousin Melvin didn't know. Melvin didn't know. No. Wow. But I forgave Jack and went to work for him when he was when he went to Flint, Michigan, back in you know in nineteen seventy four. So I forgave him. You know, I was never angry at him. Mm-hmm. But he fired me. He came into the studio one day, and um, he said to me, he said, hey, I noticed. No, he called me into his office one day. He said, hey, I noticed you're not playing this record right here. See, because back then we didn't have computers. All they did was just put a stack of records in the studio. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and they would put a look, they would put the, like a guide on the wall at what time you're supposed to play a record from the blue stack what time you supposed to play a record from the red stack? Mm-hmm. So he had he had a record in his stack. When I got to this stack, I would pick the records out of that stack that I wanted to play. So he told me, "You pick off the top in this stack. Whatever the re- <laughs> he said, you pick off the top. Whatever's next, that's what you play." Mm-hmm. Well, this record was I didn't think this was a good record. The artist was ZZ Hill. He was like, nah, I'm not playing ZZ. This was long before ZZ did <laughs> Down Home Blue. You know, this was just a, some little record label out of Nashville. Mm-hmm. You know, he hadn't got to be a big artist at that time. And so me and him got into it over the record. He said, are you going to play this record? I said, man, I'm not going to play it. He said, I'm going to ask you one more time. You the program director, though, No, right? he had, no. They had taken the job away from me. And had given it to him. Oh, Lord. But they didn't fire me from being on the radio. Okay, I got you. They just took the job away from me. Okay. So he says, you're not going to play this record? I said, nope. He said, you fired. Mm -hmm. Just like that. You got your shit and you got up out of there. So here's the deal. (laughs) I want to thank him for firing me. (laughs) Why? Okay, so you've, you've seen Cadillac Records, right? Yeah. Okay, so Leonard Chester got it on Cadillac Records. His... Son-in-law was the the general manager at the radio station. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming out of the, the Jack's office from being fired, and I bump into him. I said, "Hey, Jack just fired me." He said, "What Jack fired you for?" Mm-hmm. I said, "Cause I wouldn't play this record." Blah 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 blah. So I'm thinking he could go in and tell Jack, you know, what the hell you could, you know. Yeah. So Jack had already been to him, though I think, cause he, cause he, cause he played it real cool. He said, "I tell you what, Bobby." He said, I got to honor Jack. He said, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I got a friend. His name is Bob Collins. He is on a radio station. He works out of Detroit. 
but he consults radio stations around the country and he consults radio stations and I want you to send him a tape. Mm. So he gave me Bob's information. I sent Bob my tape. Mm-hmm. Within a week, uh, I had heard from Bob. So I called him and I said, hey, did you get my tape? He said, yeah. He said, I sent your tape to Houston. He said, they didn't call you yet. I said, no. He said, hey, man, they were supposed to call you to offer you a job. Mm. Now, this is, look, I'm barely 20 years old. Right, you young. I'm young. And he's telling me that they're getting ready to give me a job in Houston, Texas, on the biggest black radio station down there. Big market. What is going (laughs) on? So he says, he says, wait a minute. He says, I'll call you back. So he gets on the phone and he calls Houston and he calls me back. He says, hey, you're going to get a phone call in a few minutes. <laughs> so in a few minutes, the phone rang and it was a program director at the radio station, a guy named Rick Roberts. And he said, hey, listen, uh, I'm calling to, uh, we, we want to fly you down here, um, you know, and test you out. You know, we'll fly you down here and, and take care of you and test you out. And if you pass the job, if you pass the test, we'll give you the job. Mm-hmm. So I, uh. I was like, okay, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So they sent me a plane ticket and, um, you know, gave me what I needed. I hopped on the plane, mm-hmm. flew down there, flew into uh, in, the International Airport there in Houston. Mm-hmm. Now, this was in 1973 now. This was like. Oh, it wasn't George Bush International. No, thing. no, no, no. <laughs> this was the, uh, the, the, the Intercontinental. Yeah. So this was, uh, this was um, somewhere around April of 73 April, mm-hmm. May, around that time. So I fly into Houston, and uh, I call the program director from the airport. I said, hey, I'm at the airport. Mm-hmm. He said, catch a bus. He said, catch a bus to the bus station downtown. They got buses running. Catch the bus, mm-hmm. and we'll have somebody pick you up at the bus station downtown. Okay. So I hop on the bus, all right, and get on, go downtown, and... I'm just sitting in there. I had on a red checkered suit with an apple cap. Oh, you was fine. I'm ready. <laughs> hello, so, Houston. Hello, Houston. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and I see these two tall guys come in, mm-hmm. looking like gangsters. Mm. So I said, and they walking straight toward me. I said, one of these guys coming to pick me up. So they walk straight up to me, and the guy says, you Bobby OJ? I went, hey, get your stuff, man. Just like that. Mm. What's up with that? I was like, what the hell is going on here? They supposed to be taking care of you. Right. Oh, okay. So I go outside with them, <laughs> and uh, it's brand new Lincoln Continental mm-hmm. that I'm going to get in with these guys. So I get in the back seat. They didn't say a word to me. Oh, my God. Not a mumbling word. You getting hazed. I'm getting hazed. What is going on? So they take me to the radio station over on the Branch Street. Mm-hmm. They take me to the radio station, and when I pull up, I see all this stuff on the wall, but I don't know what it is at this point. Mm-hmm. Just the whole, the, the, a big brick wall around the radio station, and all I see is just a lot of the chip, just big chunks out of the out of it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think nothing about it. <laughs> so what? <laughs> those were gunshot wounds. Oh I mean, my those, god! Those were, those what is were, going those on? Were shotgun blasts up against that. The guy that picked me up, he had gotten shot outside the radio station about a year before that. Oh, wow. So I go in the radio station, meet everybody. 
And so the program director was telling me, you're doing the afternoon show. You're going to be on from uh, 3 to 7. You know, we're going to give you two weeks. If you don't make it, we're going to send you back. Nice. I said, okay. So he said, you, you'll probably be going back. He said, I don't want to give you any hopes. He said, because the guy that you're going up, going up against is a legend in this market. Mm. His name is Skipper Lee Frazier. Skipper Lee was a legend there. He owned uh, one of the big motels there that all the black guys would go to with their girlfriends. He owned a bunch of stuff there. He was a legend. He also had, um, uh, he was the, uh, the manager uh, of Archer Bell and the Drells. You know, they had, they had that mm. big record tightened up. Yeah. So Skipper Lee was the bomb, mm. but he was an older guy. He ain't no Bobby LJ. So he was right. I'm a young <laughs> dude. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so... I hit the airways at three o'clock mm-hmm. that Monday. You cut up. And I rocked it. I know you did. So on the second week, the business manager at the radio station, a guy named Bernard Walker, I see I see him in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And I he so, so he said, Hey man, you're sounding good on the radio. Mm-hmm. I see yeah, I'm trying to I said, hope to hope I get the job, man. I said, hope to hope, you know. He said, What you say? <laughs> he said, Hope you get the job. He said, Man, you already hired. I said, Huh? Oh. He said, who told you you didn't have the job? I said, Rick. He said, man, Rick. He oh. said, you already hired. You on the payroll. He said, you already hired. They was messing with me. Man, they messing me tough. Why they do you like that? They told me they didn't like, they were sick and tired of guys coming into Houston from other places. Mm-hmm. That's what they told me. That's why they hazed me like that. They, you got hazed. But this same guy, mm-hmm. after I'd been there for about two months, he was the music director at the radio station. Mm-hmm. This guy, his name was Boogaloo. And uh, he, he's no longer alive. But all, all these guys are dead. Mm. So Boogaloo calls me to his office. Not only was Boogaloo the music director, but Boogaloo was the man. Mm-hmm. He was the man. Mm. I mean, you, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> he calls me to his office. He said, I want to talk to you. So I went to his office. When I walked into his office, you know, you know these big high back chairs. Mm-hmm. When I walked into his office, he was sitting with his back looking at the wall like that. I walked in, and I sat down looking at his back. Okay. He sat like that maybe for minutes. Boogaloo, what's up? Yeah, so I'm like, what's up with this dude? And you young. I'm young. And like he was like, you know, in his late 30s, maybe even 40s at that time. Mm -hmm. So he turned around, and he said, hey, man, let me look here. He said, I'm going to get right to it. He said, "Um, I need you. To quit your job. He what? said, I need you to quit. I said, now I remember now I had a wife and two kids. Well, I had a wife and one I had a wife and one kid at, at the time. At this point. So now I'm small, but I'm I'm very cocky. Yeah. And <laughs> I can get real mean when I'm right. Right. So I said, now this dude right here, he he he, he gonna let the size fool him. Mm-hmm. So he said <laughs> I want you to quit your job. So I sat there and listened to him. I said, why you want me to quit? He said, well, Mr. Oppenheimer. Do you remember Michael Oppenheimer? That Oppenheimer sounds right. familiar. You know, he, he, was, he, was, he was the general manager yeah. be, before Morgan came. Yes, yes, Okay, yes, well, yes. Th- I was working for Michael Oppenheimer's father, wow. a radio legend named Dick Oppenheimer, who once fired Howard Stern. No, he hired Howard Stern, but he fired Tom Joyner. So most of the radio, radio legends had worked for Michael Oppenheimer's dad. Wow. So Mr. Oppenheimer was the one who okayed me to get that job after 
Bob Collins in Detroit had talked to him. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, last week, Mr. O, that's, that's what we all called him. Mr. O was had some people he, he was taking to lunch. And he was bragging to them about this hot young disc jockey that he had hired from Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. He was bragging tough on you. Mm-hmm. And one of the women in the car said, well, I hope that ain't him because he don't sound so good. So he said, that's why you got to resign. He's, no, he said, that's why you got to quit because you embarrassed Mr. O. He mm-hmm. said, and don't nobody embarrass Mr. O. Shut your mouth. That's what he said to me. That don't even sound right. Well, like. Because the chick in the car said that. The ch- he said no. uh, he said the woman told Mr. Oppenheimer, well, I hope that ain't the guy you're bragging about because he sounds terrible. He said Mr. Oppenheimer was, was embarrassing, so I, I had to go. Are you serious? That's what he said to me. So you know what I did? What did you do? Got him walked out of his office and got ready for my show. You weren't fired, though. You didn't. Oh, he wanted you to resign. He wanted me to quit. And you weren't about to do that. No. So he came on at 7 o'clock in the evening. And every Monday, rain, shine, sleet, or snow, he's going to start his show with Stormy Monday because he and Bobby Blue Bland were very good friends. Mm-hmm. And so he always came to the radio station with girls. Mm. He, so he, so he, would, he wouldn't open the door. It was not doors like this. It was just, just regular doors. He would turn the knob and he would kick the door like that. So I'm sitting fine. in the studio. I'm, still, I'm trying to finish up my show. So he's coming in putting his little stuff down. Mm-hmm. So he kicked the door open like that, mm. and he got these two girls with him. So he stands, he stands at the door. Oh, he's showing out. Yeah, he's showing out. Well dressed guy, tall, he's a nice guy. Mm-hmm. So he's standing at the door, and so he do, he so he looks at the garbage can. He walked over there. He went, get that out of here right now. I said, nothing but gum wrapper. I don't. You get it out of here right now. No. I want that garbage can empty when I come in here. That's what he said to me. And what you do, Bobby? I got it out. I took the garbage can, dumped it, walked by the girls. They was like, I walked by, dumped it, you know, set, set it back down. You know, then he what? Then he started calling me Motor Mouth. What's up, Motor Mouth? He trying to clown you. He was trying to clown me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, remember now, they had already warned me mm-hmm. that I was not going to be there long because I was not going to be Skipper Lee. Mm-hmm. Well, on the third month, the program director comes he did the same thing. Opened the door, kicked it open. Then he stood there for a minute because he, he, you know, he was a, he was a big guy too. He stood there for a minute with his hand over the door like that. He went. Then he got up and shook my hand. He said, "Looks like you're gonna be here for a while." Wow. He said, "You beat the hell out of Skipper Lee." Ooh, you, they put you through it in Houston. Oh, yeah. And look, my yeah. home state of I Texas. Know, they know. put you through it. Yep. Wow. But so after that, were y'all all cool? After that, it was so so. But mm-hmm. but after that, Rick and I were very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Boogaloo, Boogaloo and I became cool uh, after that because he realized mm-hmm. that's one that's a tough little something right there. You know, I'm not gonna jack with him. Right. You know, uh, he had everybody else running a skit. You know, uh, but Boogaloo had almost died. That's where those gunshot wounds were from. Somebody had came to the radio station, and when he was leaving the radio station after he'd gotten off the air that night, excuse me, someone. Shot him. I think he shot like 12 times buckshots. And uh, mm-hmm. they never found out who shot him. Mm. And uh, he almost died. And uh, so they, they didn't repair the wall. They just left it up there and everything. And so they would, uh, he had guys coming in the radio station. I, I remember b- being there one afternoon, and a guy came in the radio station with a shotgun. 
He he came in the station. He walked right through the lobby with a shotgun, taking it to the studio for Boogaloo. Oh my God! And what happened? Boogaloo he Boogaloo kept a shotgun in the studio, and he had a Doberman pincher with him. I walked in there one day just because I you know to get some out of the studio. He had a Doberman pincher sitting in the corner. Boogaloo was doing some stuff. He ain't had no business you doing know foul it. life. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know Boogaloo it. was out in them streets. Yep. But later on, back in the 80s, <clears throat> they gave me the Boogaloo Award at the Jack the Rapper convention. Wow. Boogaloo and I became very, we became very cool mm-hmm. after that. Wow. How long were you in Houston? Well, I went there April 73. I stayed there until, uh, this the first time I went, I stayed there until like um, Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And so... My wife was staying in Milwaukee. She didn't come to stay with me. Mm-hmm. So she was telling me, you know, I remember I'm a young guy. She's telling me, you know, if I don't come back to Milwaukee, she's going to divorce me and all this bull crap. What? So one, So one of the older guys at the radio station sat me down. He said, son, do not leave this radio station for this woman. He said, I know that's your wife, but man, this is a good job, son. Mm-hmm. So I didn't listen. So Jack Harris the guy had fired me in Milwaukee. He was working at a radio station in Flint, Michigan. And Flint, Michigan is close to Milwaukee. So he said, hey, look, I got a job for you. Because the guy had offered me a job in Boston, but I turned it down because it was too far away. So I went to Flint, Michigan instead of going to Boston. Because <laughs> oh, wow. if I was going to go to Boston, I could have just stayed in Houston. Yeah. So in 1974, I went to Flint, Michigan to work at a little station up there. And Melvin was there too. Melvin and I, so we, we were up there for a quick minute. And that didn't work. And so in 1975, uh, I went back to uh, the winter of 75. I went back to Milwaukee and uh, worked at WAWA for a little bit. Wow, wow. Wow, wow. <laughs> and, and they had a thing on the wall saying, don't say wow, wow. I'm like, why not? Um, W-A-W-A. Yeah, W-A-W-A. Oh, wow. And so um, I worked there for a little while. And then in 19, uh, I guess maybe somewhere around you know, March or April, somewhere around that time, 1975, I got a phone call uh, from uh, uh, this guy named James Alexander. Uh, he became a legendary program director for WGCI, WJLB, mm-hmm. a bunch of radio stations. Mm-hmm. And he was working as a program director at WBOK in New Orleans. Mm. And uh, he asked me uh, to come work in New Orleans. Mm. This was 1975. Did you go? I didn't go, and here's why. I didn't go because I didn't like New Orleans, and I probably and I felt like I was not going to be able to pronounce some of those street names. That's why, Bobby. That's why, and I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't go because when I turned that job down, the general manager at KYOK called me and said, "Hey, you turned that job down in in, in uh, 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 New Orleans?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Do you want to come back to Houston?" Oh, I was like, hell yeah. He said, when can you be here? I said, when you want me. He said, next week. So my wife was working at a company called Masterlock. So she was working, the, you know, she was working like a, the second shift when, you know, get off like at midnight. Mm-hmm. So when she came home that night at midnight, I had my bags packed. <laughs> Oh, my God. You must know it was the end because she was not going. So I told her I was, I told her I was going to Houston. I mean, I didn't leave that night because um, they gave me a going away party. And while they were giving me the going away party at this club, my uh, brother said to me, 
man, look at your wife sitting over there crying and everything. Mad man, you need to call them people, tell them you ain't coming back to Houston. I said, man, I'm going to Houston. And so. Why were you so determined to get back to Houston? Because it was a major market. Yeah. And you know and you what? you had already came back for her. Right, exactly. And so things were not working work out, out for us. Okay, okay, I got you. It. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, listen, God, this is, this is a calling from God right I here. know. You know what I'm saying? To get all those opportunities yeah. come at you again. Exactly. So, I went to Houston, 1975. And I was there until 1976 until I got the phone call to go to KKDA in Dallas to replace Tom Joyner wow. in 1977. And then uh, I worked at KKDA doing the morning show uh, from 1977. A friend of mine that I had worked with in Flint was from Chicago, and he said, you need to be working in Chicago. So he, he, he took one of my tapes and sent it to WBMX there in Chicago where James Alexander was mm-hmm. the program director and Ernest James was the general manager. Uh, Ernest was a radio legend for sure. And they uh, they sent the tape to their consultant, a guy named Mac Allen, a white cat. And he called me. Uh, and he said, hey, we want to give you a job. Mm. He said, we got three radio stations that need someone. Okay. We got WWRL in New York, KDIA in Oakland, and we got WBMX in Chicago. He said, I'm going to give you a choice. Which one do you want to go? had all the major markets. You had number one market in New York. Yes. Did you go to New York? I didn't go to New York to because Chicago. Okay, now, this is 1978. Okay. So FM was really hitting at that time. Yeah. This was an AM station that, that, that was, you know, it was a legendary, but, you know, I said, plus the fact it was New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was intimidated by that. I had a bunch of friends and kinfolks there in Chicago, mm-hmm. and Milwaukee is 90 miles away. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go way out to KDIA, even though I love the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey, man, I want to go to WBMX. Mm-hmm. And so Chicago. they flew me to Chicago. Mm-hmm. I went up there, met with James Alexander for a weekend. He showed me around mm-hmm. and everything. And, and uh, they gave me a contract. <laughs> I went back to Dallas, mm-hmm. told uh, Chuck Smith. I was going to say goodbye, mm-hmm. and me and the family hit the road in Chicago 1978, and I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I just can not believe it, because the first night, the first day that I was there, uh, actually it was the first weekend I was there, I hadn't even been on the radio, but the radio station was having their anniversary, and they had it at a club downtown Chicago called Dingbats. And they had all of the radio personalities to meet at the radio station, and we went down there in a limousine. Mm. This is 1978. Yeah, y'all was doing it. We rolling downtown (laughs) Chicago. Look, I mean, I'm a young cat. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like 24, 25 years old. So we rolling. You know, we get down to the club. You know, Mr. T was the, Mr. T was the, um, he was not famous then. Mm -hmm. He was the bouncer at the club. That's how I met him. And uh, so we went downtown Chicago. We all piled out the limo, went in dingbats, and I'm like, wow, wow. Like, wow. I can get used to Chicago. I said, man, I can get used to this, <laughs> you know. And um, just, you know, just mingling, and they introduced me to people to me. This guy's the morning man. He's going to be on, you know, because I was working from 5 to 9. Mm-hmm. That's when they put me on the air there. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, that Monday morning, I hit the, I hit the airwaves, mm-hmm. and they started getting complaints right away. Why? Because uh, you was talking your... Well, they said I was too country. Too country? Yeah. In Chicago? In Chicago, they said I was too country. I know they did. So uh, about 
three months of being there, may, may not, maybe not that long. James Alexander called me to his office and he said to me, he said, hey, look, they putting pressure on me. They want me to fire you. He said, but I told them you need at least six months. Mm-hmm. He said, because I think you can do it. Mm-hmm. He's, the biggest complaint was the salespeople said that I sounded like I was a black country guy. I sounded like a white guy who was trying to be black. What? Yeah. No, I can't. I can't even imagine. Yeah, because I was I was pretty that. smooth back then. Oh, that's what <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh my God! James Alexander told them, "I got faith in him. We got to give him some time." Mm-hmm. Well, guess what happened? What happened? The boy rocked the house. You rocked out. Look, Chicago got used to that, huh? They got used to it. <laughs> so, oh my! He called me to his office, and he gave me he. He he gave me a, a a new contract, and he gave me I think it was a twenty five hundred dollar bonus. It was a twenty five hundred dollar check, and he handed it to me. I said, "What's this for?" He said, "That's your bonus, man." Mm-hmm. I said, "My bonus? Mm-hmm. I ain't nothing about no bonuses." Mm-hmm. He said, "That's your bonus, man." He said, "I want you to sign this piece of paper right here." Is this? <laughs> what was the terms of the contract? You was tied in for how long? It was a two year contract, mm-hmm. and so. I'm tearing up Morning Drive. Mm-hmm. That's how I met uh, Michael Collier. Mm-hmm. He still brings it up when I see him. He'll say, man, you know, uh, I was working for this caterer. You know, I said, I know. And he said, you know, you came in with this I love my job thing. Because I was taking, back then I was doing the I love my job roll call and I was taking lunch to people. Mm-hmm. And I was I took lunch up to the Playboy Club. I was taking lunch just to everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, just out in the streets, I mean, I was at a club almost every night in mm-hmm. Chicago. I was working the streets. Mm-hmm. I was young. Mm-hmm. And so I became uh, pretty popular. And uh, so they brought in this guy, a guy named Jim Maddox from the West Coast. He had made a radio station in Los Angeles, very popular. He took an AM radio station in Los Angeles, a station called K-Day. And he became a radio legend by make, taking an AM station in Los Angeles and making it like the number one radio station. Mm-hmm. So he, he became a legend. Mm-hmm. So he came to Chicago to program the radio station. So when he came in, the first thing he did was take me off the morning show. <laughs> no. He took me off the morning show and he brought in some guy named Bob Scott from Washington, D.C. But when I heard Bob on the air, I said to myself, this ain't gonna last long. Mm-mm. What Bob sounded like? Oh, he was upscale. Mm-hmm. You know, he was not, you know, see, you know, there's one thing I knew about Chicago. Chicago is full of people from, from the South. Definitely. You know, yeah. Chicago's a nitty-gritty city. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that the old disc jockeys who had worked at WVON, I, I had studied them, mm-hmm. you know, from, from listening to them back, you know, in the 60s and from back uh, just, you know, visiting Chicago. I, I knew what those guys sounded like. Mm-hmm. So I knew what Chicago liked because mm-hmm. I was just like those guys. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I know you saw the movie Talk to Me. Yes, I love that movie. Okay, well, the white guy in the movie was where well, he was portraying Egmont Sunderland. Mm. Mr. Sunderland, at the time, owned WBMX, WDIA in Memphis, mm. KDIA in Oakland, WOL in New Here York. We go. Mr. Sunderland owned all those stations. Okay. Mr. Sunderland was in Japan. So Jim Maddox comes in, he fires a whole bunch of folks in the radio station. So he's shaking the radio station up. Mm-hmm. And he tells me, 
um, since you got a contract, even though my contract said morning drive, he said, even though you got a contract, I want to fire you. He just told me. Mm-hmm. He said, I want to fire you. He said, but I'm going to put you on at midnight. He said, so starting Monday, you're going to work from midnight to five. Did he tell you why? He told me he didn't like me. He told, he, he told me that he, he didn't like my sound. Okay. They were going to take the radio station upscale. Okay, and, and you I, weren't a part of that equation. I was anymore. right because I was, you know, I was, you know, I guess I was too dirty for him. Okay. Too, too you know, too, <laughs> I sounded too Southern for him. Okay. So when, you know, back then when something like that happened, you know, the, 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 the newspapers picked up the shakeup. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal. You know, the major newspapers, Chicago, Sun-Times, picked up the story. Mm-hmm. Shakeup at WBMX. So Mr. Sunderland is in Japan and he's hearing about all this stuff. He gets on it. He cuts his vacation short, flies back to Chicago, calls me and tells me, I want to see you. Mm. I go to the radio station and there's, I'm sitting here, Jim Maddox sitting over there, Mr. Sunderland sitting there. Mm. So Jim Maddox is telling Mr. Sunderland why he took me off the air. So Mr. Sunderland sit there for a minute. He listened to him. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, Put him back on. I want him back on the radio Monday morning. Mm. Mr. Sunderland trumps so all. So Jim Maddox said to him, okay. When Mr. Sunderland got him walked out of the room, Jim Maddox said, yeah, I'm going to do it for now. But you good is gone. So at that point, I didn't want to work for somebody like that, right? You knew you had an ax on your back. Exactly. So Ernest James, was the, he was the general manager over WBON and WGCI. Mm-hmm. So... He had already called me about doing the morning show at WVON. So I called him and I said, hey, I'm ready for that job. So I met with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lee Armstrong, was the, he was over there at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee Armstrong um, uh, worked for iHeart uh, when Bruce Demps was here. Bruce Demps. Yeah, Lee Armstrong was running the radio stations in St. Louis for iHeart. Mm-hmm. He now owns his own radio station in Chattanooga, WNOO. Mm-hmm. So... I went to work for Ernest. He put me on the morning show at WVON, and that format is similar to the WDIA format, where I would play music and talk to the listeners about different things. At the time, the Atlanta murders were going on. Oh wow! Uh, back then, and mm-hmm. so in 1980, that's when I got introduced to the format similar to WDIA talk radio. Talk radio with playing music and talking. Did you like that format? I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. You could and, show more uh, of your personality. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so that's it. And then, and, uh, so uh, and quickly, I'm going to tell you that. So while I'm at WVON, they make me the program director. Here we go. Them PD jobs. But they didn't give coming. me no power. Why are you the program director with no power? Marv Dyson was the general manager. He told me, he said, you the program director, but before you do anything, you got to go through Richard. Guy named Richard Pegues. He said, before you make, he said, before you do anything, make anything, before you do anything, you got to get the okay from Richard. I'm like, huh? So I was okay with that, but I was like, you know, this, this is, you this know. This ain't going to work. This ain't going to work. <laughs> so I'm there for two years, 1980 to 1982. Uh, Marv Dyson was a sales manager. Well, he was a salesperson. He wasn't even a sales manager. Mm-hmm. So he came to me one day, and we, so we, we were talking. He was just a salesman. He said, hey, you know they need a new general manager? I'm going, uh, I'm going to corporate, and I'm going to interview for the job. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, we just talking, shooting the bull. And I said to, I said to him, I said, uh, I said, well, hey, man, well, good luck. And he was telling me everything he was going to do, mm-hmm. you know. So I kind of laughed him off. 
He said, when I get to be general manager, I'm going to do so, 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 blah, blah. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I just blew him off. Mm-hmm. He got the job. Wow. So he got the job, and uh, that's how I became the program director. Marv made me the program director. Mm-hmm. Um, but And so at this time, I'm riding high. So I got me a little club on the west side. You got a club? Oh, I got a little joint on the west side. Oh, yeah, Bobby O's VIP. Oh, I'm cutting up sideways. Oh, wow. Got okay. me a brand new Cadillac. Okay. I'm just doing the thing. You what know what I'm saying? What did wifey say about all that? Wifey she was... didn't know. Oh. I mean, she knew, but she didn't know. Okay. Because, you know, my first wife was, you know, she's she in, um, uh, you know, I I, I I did a lot of things the way men used to do things. You you do them and you tell your wife about it later. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I hear you. I hear you. Um, and so, you know, I got mixed up in drugs and everything. So I'm hanging out with, you know, with uh, big time drug dealers and club owners mm. on the west side. We just doing the thing. Mm-hmm. So Marv calls me in one day. This is about maybe about a year later. He calls me in one day and he says, hey, we got a new schedule. He said, I wanted you to know that we got a new schedule. I'm like, well, shit, I'm the program director. I mean, I got a new schedule. You ain't told me about it. So he's got Richard there, and he's there. So Marvis, he, so he, so he runs down everything. Um, so-and-so is going to be doing the middays, and so-and-so is going to be doing so-and-so, and so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And um, Yvonne Daniels is going to be doing the morning show. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, what am I going to be doing? What am I going to do? I said, what am I going to be doing? He, well, he said, well, that's just it. He said, you ain't going to be doing nothing. He said, of course, mm-hmm. you know, I'm letting you go. He, he was just that smooth. Mm-hmm. So me and him sit there and we talked to him because, you know, I kind of laughed it off. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wanted to know why. He said, well, a couple things. A, you've been running late. I hear you got a drug problem. Mm-hmm. And you act like a pimp. He said, and oh, by the way, you got that joint on the west side that you didn't ask me could you get. He said, your contract says before you go get something, you're supposed to talk to me about it. <laughs> oh, no. So, got so then he just went into his field. Mm-hmm. He said, you got a wife and kids. Nobody know it. You don't talk about it. Tom Joyner talks about his kids and his wife. You don't do that. You know, he said, look <laughs> at you. He said, you sitting there looking like a pimp, got your hair all curled, got them boots on. I, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I was sitting there. I was, I was like, okay. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, though. I mean, because it was almost like it was, a, it was like it was a comedy act. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, though. He said, I'm going to let you work for the next two weeks. He said, but I want you to go on the air and tell people that you are retiring from the radio business. He said, he said and if you do that, here's what I'll do for you. I'll give you $10,000 cash. Wait a minute. I'll give you all those T-shirts we're going to buy for you, and you can sell them for $5 a piece. What? I'll give you two weeks a free airtime to promote your club, and I'll let you get unemployment. He said, but if you say one thing on the radio that I don't like, if you tell anybody that you're not retiring, I'm going to take everything back. So I said, I said, now hold up there, Marv. I got a contract. And that's when he started pulling, all, all, he started pulling out all that stuff on me. <laughs> oh, so, so anyway... I went along with it. So for the for the last two weeks, I was a gentleman. I was professional. Mm-hmm. I went on the air. I did my thing. After that, I shook his hands and left the radio station. And so uh, from like maybe April of 1983 until November of 83, that's all I did. You know, the club. I did the club, got my unemployment, you know, and I lived up that 10 grand he gave me, lived up the club. 
And then in November of 1983, uh, I'm sorry, November, November of 1982, I get a phone call from a guy I used to work with at WBMX, and he was um, the program director of a FM station in Houston called Love 94. And he said, hey, man, I need a morning man. He said, can you come work for me? I said, hell yeah. He said, when can you be here? I said, when you want me. He said, can you be here Monday? I was like, I'll be there. So you was just going to dish the club? I went you because, were sick of that. Yes. So I went to the guy that owned the club, mm. and I said, hey, man, I got a job at Houston. I'm leaving. He said, okay. Oh, I gave wow. him his keys back. Went home, packed my stuff, sent my wife to Milwaukee to be with her mother and father, and I hopped in my ride, and, and I went to, to Houston. This was in November of 83. And in uh, January of 1980, of 19, I'm, I'm sorry, no, November of 82, in January of 1983, I go to the radio station to do my show. I got paid that Friday. I done paid my rent. I go to the radio station Monday morning after, after I done paid my rent in January. The PD comes in after I get off there and say, hey, man, I'm about to fire you. I got to let you go. Wait a minute. He told me the general manager... Me and the general manager had some words. The general manager told me, he heard me say, I said something about Prince. I said, I called Prince a little freak. I, I said something about Prince. <laughs> so he calls me to his office and he says, we don't like that kind of talk around here. He said, and the people downstairs said, you keep stomping the floor when you're on the air. The people downstairs in the next, you know. And uh, he said, and by the way, uh, your name is Bobby. He said, you, you got a kitty. He said, "You got a kitty name for a grown man to be on, you know, to be on this radio station. You're calling yourself Bobby." So here's my smart mouth. I said, "Well, a guy I replaced was named Mike." Oh wow, what do you say? Bobby is a much more manly name than Mike, <laughs> and I'm mean, just gonna put it that way. So he really, he really pissed off now. So you gotta go. I got to go. So you know, I came in that Monday, and my friend said, "Hey man, I got to fire you." I said, "Why didn't you tell me Friday, man? I just paid my rent." Mm. He said, "Man, I'm sorry." So. I packed my stuff, sent my wife and kids back to Milwaukee, and then I, you know, at that time, you know, I had such a bad drug habit. I I think that's why they fired me. Mm -hmm. Even I was going to work and everything, but, you know, because I always went to work. Mm -hmm. I just think some people, you know, may dropped a dime on me. Yeah. And so I, um, I mean, I had lost everything. I didn't have no car or nothing. Mm. So I um, uh, hopped on the Greyhound bus. And I had about $700 after I sent my wife and kids back. So I hopped on the Greyhound bus, came to came back to Basefield to my parents' house. Mm. Now, can you imagine what my folks were saying? Oh. It's a damn shame. I bet. That boy done just blew everything. Mm. My mother and father never said a mumbling word to me about drugs. They never said, son, we, we hear these things. Nip, nip, nip. They, they didn't say, say none of that? My brothers and sisters... Nobody ever said to me, mm-hmm. "Hey man, we know what you're doing." All, you what know, did they say? What, they just kept. They just welcomed you home. Yeah, they they just welcomed me home. That's what you needed at <clears> the time, though. You know, and they just you know because I guess my mother and father said, "Hey, in time he's gonna be okay." Because they were they were yeah. they were praying for me, you know. And Aww. so I get to Basefield, and I said, "I can't stay here." So I called Melvin because Melvin was working here. He was uh, he was the program director over at One Hundred and One. So me and Melvin was hanging out together. I came to Memphis, and me and him was hanging out together. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was like uh, late January of 1983. Wow. So K97 had an opening mm. for Morning Drive. 
So I went over to K97 and um, had a conversation with the general manager over there. And he told me it was a toss between me and Herb Nealon. Well, well, Herb, I take that back. Herb was on the air already. Mm-hmm. They were going to get rid of Herb and hire me. Mm. Well, about a week after we were talking, he told me that he couldn't fire Herb. So now, you know, I'm thinking, okay, fine, you know, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get a job. So, I thought about Ernest James, who had hired me in Chicago, and I knew he was over KDIA in Oakland, and I also okay. know that he was over WDIA in WDIA, Memphis, yep. but he was working out of Oakland. So I called the radio station from my mama's house. I called Oakland, California, and I asked the secretary. I said, "Hey, I want to speak to Ernest James." She said, "He's not here. He's not in town." I left my name and number. Well, Melvin's brother is a truck driver. So he was leaving town that day in his 18-wheeler. And so I said, hey, I'm going to ride with you. So he pulled up in front of the house <laughs> for me to you know, get in the truck. I go outside. I'm in the truck. We're getting ready to pull off. My mama comes to the door and says, hey. You on the phone. You got a phone call. Bam. I go inside, and it's Ernest James. He said, hey, where you at? I said, I'm at my mama's house in Baseville, Mississippi. He said, I thought you you from Memphis. I said, about 60 miles. He said, well, I'm in Memphis at WDIA. We need a morning man and a program director. He said, can you come Can you come up here? Oh, wow. I said, when? He said, now. I said, I'll be there. So my daddy, uh, so I called Melvin. And I said, hey, man, I got an interview <laughs> at the Hilton tonight to be the program director and the morning man for WDIA. I said, my daddy gonna take me to the bus. You get this? Here's my daddy I, take me to the bus station again. This is now. Your this life is, has come around yeah, exactly all the way around. This is February 1983. That's so uh, my daddy take me to the Greyhound bus station. I get on. I get on it. I come to Memphis. Melvin picks me up at the Greyhound bus station downtown, and he mm-hmm. says, "Oh." So he was taking me to the Hilton out there, you know, mm-hmm. off of Poplar and 240. He said, "Oh, don't never tell anybody." that you came to Memphis on a Greyhound bus because you a big-time jock, man. We can't let that get out. <laughs> so I didn't have a car or anything. I get to the hotel, mm-hmm. go in the room. In the room is Ernest James and the president of the broadcast division, a guy named Bill Figginshue, wow. the guy that ran the company. A heavy hitter. A heavy hitter. He's in the room mm. along with Mr. Chuck Scruggs because Mr. Scruggs was the general manager. So I'm in the room. Mr. Scruggs, he, you know, he's asking me a few questions, but guess what? Ernest James did most of the talking. Mm-hmm. He negotiated my salary that night and everything. That's a blessing. I didn't even have to interview for the job. Mm. When I left, when that night was over, when the interview was over, they had given me two weeks in the Hilton and a brand new car to drive. Oh, my God. They was doing it like that. See, back in those days, program directors got cars to drive. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, they would give you a car to drive or either give you a car allowance. That's a blessing. By that time, had you cleaned up your Oh, God, ass? no. I was cutting up. I was I was cutting up sideways in 83. So in 1983, oh uh, that uh, so they gave me the job. The next morning, uh, the station was on Central over by the fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. I went to the radio station. I came in. They had everybody gathered around. Mike Webb was working at the station then. He was a salesman. Yeah, he was there. And so we got all these people there. They bring me in. They introduce me to everybody. They told them I was going to be the new morning man and the program director and blah, 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 you know. But, you know, I was still doing drugs. 
So from 1983 to 84, I'm rocking the mic. I mean, I'm killing it. So <laughs> Chuck Scruggs leaves WDIA. But the day before he leaves, he's going to give the job to the sales manager, a guy named Ernie Jackson. You know Ernie, right? Mm-hmm. Have you met Ernie? Yes. So Ernie was a sales manager, but he's going to be the general manager. Everybody is gone. So they said to me, we want to have a meeting with you, Bobby. I ain't thinking nothing about the meeting. So I go to Mr. Scruggs' office, and there's Mr. Scruggs and Ernie Jackson. So Mr. Scruggs said to me, he said, he, said, <clears throat> he would always do this, <clears throat> like that. <laughs> he said, here you got a drug problem. I said, no. He said, I hear you're using drugs. I said, yes, sir, I do. I said, but I ain't using them right now. <laughs> and you know what? They couldn't believe it. Their mouths dropped open. They were like, the audacity. They just looked at me, and he said, <clears throat> so Ernie never said a word. So we talked and everything. I said, they get, I said, they get ready to fire me. But I'd been on the air for about a year now, mm-hmm. so I'm rocking the mic now. You're pulling in the ratings. I'm pulling in the ratings. I mean, I'm cutting up sideways. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe they probably had, had to call Ernest James, mm-hmm. and maybe Ernest may have said, you know, hey, listen, man, you know. As long as the guy's coming to work and everything, man, you know. I mean, I don't know why they didn't fire me. Put him in rehab. You you know, could have been God's will, you know, whatever. But, you know, this is 1984, so a a year goes by. I'm still doing drugs. I'm doing what the hell I want to do. Running things. I'm just running things. Mm. So, in June of 1985, (laughs) it was a Wednesday morning. I'll never forget. June of 1985, I come in. must have been June because it was Friday the 28th. So that Wednesday must have been the 26th. I come in to do my morning show after doing drugs all night. I come in, I sit down behind the microphone, and I pick up the phone, and I call Ernie Jackson, the general manager. I say, hey, listen, Ernie. He said, what you calling me this early in the morning for? What, what's, what's wrong? I said, I'm calling to tell you I got to go to rehab, man. I said, man, I, I got a bad drug problem. He said, I thought you had conquered that thing. I thought you weren't doing drugs no more. Mm-hmm. I said, no, nah, man, I got, I got a bad problem, man. I said, I need to get some help. What made you come to that realization? I, I had been praying. Mm-hmm. I had been asking God to help me. Mm-hmm. I know my mother and father was praying for me. I know my sister and brother was praying for me, too. Mm-hmm. And so um, he said, where do you want to go? I said, well, we get paid Friday. I said, I want to make sure my wife and kids okay, mm-hmm. and I'm going Friday. He said, okay, man. So he can't, you know, so I did my show, and I called the rehab people over at uh, St. Joseph, mm-hmm. over at the care unit. And I told them I want to come in and everything. They went, we'll come get you right now. Well, where, where are you? I said, look here. <laughs> I said, I'm coming Friday. I told you, don't, don't, I'm coming Friday. Mm-hmm. So Friday when I got paid, I made, I took, you know, I gave my wife a chunk of money. And, uh, you know, because it was a 30-day program. And uh, she and the kids dropped me off down there to St. Joseph Care Unit. It was that Friday, June 28th. I walked in that joint. And on July 28th, I walked out, a brand new man. I haven't touched drugs since June 26 wow. of 1985. I've been clean ever since. Mm. No drugs, no alcohol. Amazing. It's amazing, isn't and, it? And you know what? In this business, you're around so much of that, yeah. drugs and alcohol. It was, and back, back in those days? Really tough. Everybody was doing drugs back in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we was having tons and tons of radio conventions. Mm-hmm. You know, it was at least, at least five, at least four to five radio conventions a year. Mm-hmm. You got Luther Campbell and the two live crew with yeah. all the naked girls. You know, I never went to one of his parties. Never? I would hear guys saying, man, <laughs> Lucas having a party tonight, you know, at, up, up so-and-so sweet. 
But yeah. I never made it to his parties because it was I would meant always for you not to go. Exactly. I would always mm-hmm. hook up with some other guys at the convention who was doing drugs and we'd be sitting up in up somewhere just, doing drugs all night long. Just lit. You know, I mean wow. just just walking through the lobbies is just zombies, you know. Zombies. You know what? Your story is amazing. And what, what I heard from you today is mm-hmm. you dealt with a lot of rejection yeah, yeah. during your career. And uh, you absolutely. still standing, oh, though. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like yeah. you took rejection well, absolutely. though. Absolutely. See, I'm a Leo. I'm a leader. We the king of the jungle. For real. There's a jungle out here. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. And you've been in radio for so long. Yeah, 47 years. 47 years yeah. now. I mean, I know like with technology, so much has changed. You know, like even now, you said back in the day, you'd mm-hmm. be in the studio, you had the music up loud. You go through these studios, now you yeah. don't hear anything. Nope. Mm-mm. So like now, how are you able to, I guess, you know, maintain your personality and your show under different circumstances with what we're dealing with now in radio? Well, because nothing has nothing has changed for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some some things have changed in the industry, but very little has changed for me, meaning no one has said to me, uh, Bobby, don't deliver your show like this. Mm-hmm. Bobby, don't do this. Bobby, don't say this. You know, Bobby, don't do that. No one has said, you know, so I have been able uh, to run uh, my show uh, basically the way I ran it, you know, uh, 35 years ago. Wow. So basically nothing has, has changed mm-hmm. for me. That is a blessing. Yeah, yeah it, is. it is. And you've been through a lot. Um, yeah. I know you were very open mm-hmm. about, um, you know, your marriage with your wife, Sharon. Right. And you had suffered her loss right. um, not too long ago. Yeah. So how has that been since you've lost Sharon? Yeah. You know, Sharon was like, man, she was my rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm gonna tell you, um, it's been it's, it's going on three years because you know uh, July of this year was it was a, it was it was the uh, second year, mm-hmm. and you know when she first passed away, uh, it was just really I didn't believe it really, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so as time goes on, you know, through prayer, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know you have to ask God to help you to deal with things because. You know, at some point, my time is going to be up, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I miss her. She was kind of like um, uh, someone who kept me balanced. Mm-hmm. You know, she would say, Bobby, you shouldn't talk about that no more on the radio. Mm-hmm. Bobby, I don't think y'all talk about that. Or, Bobby, I don't think y'all do that. Did you listen? Yeah. Okay. I wanted to. I want to talk about some, I want to talk about some things, but I didn't talk about a lot of things because it would upset her. Mm-hmm. She didn't. She was she she was bothered when people would call the radio station talking crazy to me. Mm-hmm. You know, she said it would it would you know upset her because you know she wanted everybody to love me, mm-hmm. and you know, she just didn't want me saying some of the things that I was saying, and so I held back on a lot of things. Wow. You know, because I, I didn't want her, I didn't want to get her upset. Wow. You know, but uh, she's, uh, when she passed away, I was thinking to myself, what am I going to do now? I mean, you know, you're used to having somebody, because we, we were together for 31 years, married for 29. Mm-hmm. And we were together, I mean, like every day. And you talked about her all the time. Talked about her all the time. And when I would see you out, I would see you at the the Macy's with her. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we were, 
mm-hmm. just like that, you know. But, you know, and then I, you know, and then when I finally did get back out there, because you know, with 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 a, a man, some guys, because I talked to a guy whose wife had passed away. He told me that his wife had passed away the year before Sharon passed away. And he told me he still hadn't started dating or talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. And but I've heard. Uh, even preachers say that if my wife passed away today, I'd get another woman right away. Mm-hmm. And my brothers told me that my, that my father used to say, boys, if your mama passed away today, I have another woman next week. Oh, Lord. Because uh, men think that way. Yeah. So when Sharon passed away, she had, you know, before she passed away, she had given me some tips. She was like, Bobby, don't do this. Bobby, watch this kind of woman because she'll run through your money. <laughs> she was schooling me on some things, she you know. She was schooling you. She was telling me, Bobby, don't date these kind of women. Bobby, don't date no Memphis women. <laughs> so I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, I was like, uh, oh, I'm sorry about that. I thought I'd put it on vibrate. That's okay. There it is. Um, I was thinking to myself, well, so I tried the internet dating. So I went online. You did internet dating? Well, you know, I went on, I went on, no, I mean, I didn't date anybody from, from the internet. You tried it. I just went online, you know, on those swipe, websites. Swipe, swipe. She, she said, don't date nobody from Memphis. Okay. So I thought, well, let me see if anybody from uh, Dyersburg or from Nashville. In the vicinity. In the vicinity. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and so, but that didn't, that didn't pan out. That didn't work out. No, that didn't pan out. And so... Uh, in November, you know, you know, I had, you know, maybe, you know, seen, you know, a couple of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, no, in, in, in November of, uh, 2017, that's when I met Kim. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, after I met her and everything, you know, she, she was, she was, it's not that I was trying to find somebody like Sharon. Mm-hmm. But you still want to be with somebody you that has some, uh, you know, what, what that gives you a comfort level. Yeah. Because I I wasn't ready to get totally out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So she fit into my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So after I you know met her and I saw that she fit into my comfort zone, I felt like you know at my age I shouldn't be out here trying to date. This woman, that woman, date this woman, date this woman, you know. And I didn't want to be one of those kind of guys that said, well, my wife has passed away, so I need to wait at least a year. Because I was getting emails from people telling me, "Uh, you need to wait a year. You need to do so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And I would say, this is my life. Right. This is my life. It is my decision. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you're not the one that's lonely. You're not the one that's hurting. You know what I'm saying? So you got to live your life the way God gave you your life. So you have to live your life the way you believe you have to live your life. Mm-hmm. And so I can understand why women don't date somebody right away. Mm-hmm. But a man can do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I'm not being sexist. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality of it. You know, I met a woman yesterday. Her husband has been dead for five years. And she's still not. She told me she still doesn't have anybody. She says the reason why is that the men that she's been meeting, you know, she can't go to second base with them mm-hmm. because they just ain't worth it. I said, well, it's been five years. She said, well, there's nothing out here. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's 63 years old. She looks great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, you know, it's 
you know, I know it's difficult for, and I, I've said this on, 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 on the air, if you're a woman that's in your 50s and 60s, you know, you, it's, you know it might be kind of difficult to find someone that's compatible to you that's going to do the right thing by you uh, if he's your age. Because some guys, a lot of guys in my age group who are single, and if they have means, a lot of them sometimes may have a difficult, may have some problems dating someone in their age group. And so that's why I always suggest to women, always try to date a man that's 10 to 15 years older than you. Even if you're 35 years old, I still suggest a woman dating a man that's 10 years or so older. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a woman in her 60s, they may not want 10 A, man, a woman in her 60s, it's, it's extremely go, hard for her. You might want to go young. She, she may want a young guy, <laughs> but see, you know, finding a young guy that's want to deal with a woman in her, in, in her 60s, I mean, even yeah. if she looks great, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be hard to find someone that's that's, that's probably going to be true to her. I mean, he he's out there. Mm-hmm. She just got to go where he is. Yeah, you know. But it's hard for women, young and old, to meet men that's going to do right. You know what? And I have so many friends that are single and they trying to figure it out. And they said exactly what you just said. And it's a mess out here. Yeah, it is. It's a mess out here. Yeah, yeah, I found that out. You found that out. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I did. I mean, look, I've dated women, you know, not dated, but I was, you know, I would take women out to talk to them. And some of them would start talking about marriage right away. Oh, no. You was like, oh, no. Pump the brake. Right away. (laughs) One girl told me. That she was not gonna have sex with me until I commit. So I was thinking to myself, <laughs> I was like, "How am I? Gonna, I was like, How am I gonna commit to you without no. having sex?" No, she didn't. She, two girls told me that. So you know what I said to? I've said to myself, "You're not interested in me." Mm-hmm. That's what I said. Mm-hmm. I took it as them saying, "I'm not interested in you," mm-hmm. but if you go ahead and commit to me, we can have sex. Mm. But. I was not going to lie to him because I was not, I didn't want to lie to him because I, 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 you know, I don't want to be known as that dog guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm 66. I've had a lot of sex. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to, you know, BS women to have sex. You don't. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I've been around the block. You know so. what's up. <laughs> oh, wow. And Bobby, you yeah. know what? You look yeah. so good. You're 66. Look yeah. at your Skin. I mean, you. you glowing. Thank you. I appreciate it. Do you it. have a special diet? I yeah, know of course you don't, I do. <laughs> I know you don't have. I know you don't drink or do drugs. Right. But do you have? Are you a vegan? I mean, what's going I'm on? I'm part vegan. You know, most of the time I eat plant plant based foods. Uh, I eat very little chicken. I mean, I mean very little. And if I do, uh, it's I'm just being cordial. You know, okay. like I might, you know, at a restaurant or something. I might, but that's that's rare. Mm-hmm. If I'm traveling, I might eat Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. or chicken nugget or something like that if I'm traveling. Um, but <clears throat> And I'll eat, I'll eat salmon maybe once a week. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, I'm eating plant-based foods. Uh, last night, I had cornbread that I made myself mm. uh, with an avocado. And I have, still have cornbread left. Did, did that fill you up? It filled me up. Okay. So I have I still have a piece of cornbread left, and I have 
I bought an avocado at Whole Foods today, another one. So I'll have I'll do a repeat tonight. Okay. But before I came here today, I had kale and uh, broccoli with carrots. I had a uh, broccoli slaw with just the broccoli, uh, the cut broccoli and the mm-hmm. carrots, and uh, kale, uh, and some cherries and some nuts, mm-hmm. uh, sashios in a salad. That sounds good. That's y'all. It, it, well, it's, it's extremely good. That sounds good. So uh, with some thousand island salad dressing. So I had that before I came here. You cook that on up. Yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> popped it in there. Wow. You know, because I mean, you know, I have to cook for myself. Yeah. Um. So I uh, I just eat plant-based foods, and I eat mm-hmm. mostly organic. Mostly organic. Mostly organic. Almost, I am 99.9% organic, except when I'm maybe out, you know, eating some fries or something or mm-hmm. broccoli at a restaurant or something like that. But wow, I, I eat, that's, you know, and the reason why I eat organic is because of less pesticides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not trying to. If listen, if I can eat and l- have a long life, that's that's great. Mm-hmm. But I'm more concerned about not being in the hospital and not being sick. Mm-hmm. I believe if I eat a good diet, I won't be sick. And you know what? That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They say a lot of times <clears throat> these ailments comes mm-hmm. from everything you put in your mm-hmm. body. Is it starts with diet? Yeah. Well, it looks like you're on a good diet too. Thank you. Yeah, you know, Thank because you. you keep your weight down and you look great too. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah. I do want to ask you this, mm-hmm. Bobby. Um, you know, I know you said you sent me your bio. The yeah. last thing on that bio said, yeah. I'm not going nowhere right. in, in radio. <laughs> right. Now, I know to the day you die, you're going to be in radio. Right. But what advice do you have for people that are now trying to get in the radio business? Don't do it. Don't do it. Let me tell you why. Because the radio business is not going, it's not what it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. Listen, you can sit in the studio right here and talk to 100 cities. With the voice tracking. Yes. The syndicated show. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, radio stations, you know, don't need a whole lot of disc jockeys anymore. Mm Mm-mm. You know, I mean, if you're extremely good, you know, that's one thing. But, you know, it's. It's hard now. It's just not a career anymore. However, mm-hmm. I, what I would suggest is this, though. If you want to be in the radio business, I would suggest specializing in something mm-hmm. like talk and sports. But just getting in the radio business to be a disc jockey, bump that. That ain't going to happen no more. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's going to be good. Yeah. You know, um, to have longevity. To have longevity. I just think that if you want to be in the radio business, do try to do sports and some kind of talk thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but sports is your best bet. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you are a female, uh, you could probably get into the door through sports. If you're a male, you can get in through the door doing sports. But as a male, you have you you got to be unique. Mm-hmm. You got to have a unique voice, a unique presentation. There has to be something unique about you. And as a woman, you you, you really got to be unique. You just can't be just a run of the mill, you know, woman saying, 
just talking about sports, you have to talk about it and know it. And know it, know them facts. Yeah, you got to have some flair. You got to, you know what I mean? You, you got to do I it with some with some flair. Yeah. You know, um, you know, radio stations are always looking for that special something. Mm -hmm. The problem is now is that radio stations don't have the budgets like no. they used to. So, no. you know. No, and then they'll be like, okay, we can get so-and-so out of Houston to there do your you show. So Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. changed yeah. so much. So now, I recommend television, television over radio. Okay. And you know what? When, when people ask me now, I recommend podcasting. Because you podcasting said something is, with talking. Oh, this, I would agree with you. Perfect. Podcasting is going to be a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's already a big deal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I, you know, I think uh, radio is going to always be around. But you're going to have to have, have something truly special to succeed and stay on the radio in the future. But yeah. podcasting is, you know, is the wave of the future it's because the right you can do a whole bunch of stuff. And a lot of people are now going to Facebook to do shows. Mm -hmm. Facebook live yeah. it up. Yeah. Jada Pinkett <laughs> oh, yeah. is with the her one who book. kicked all of this off. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's got like two million people watching her now on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So now I'm hearing that other people are taking their shows to Facebook. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Internet is going to be an avenue. Yeah. Uh, for that. So if you got this special talent, you know, and there's a radio station in your hometown or a radio station here that's going to give you a job, take it, but don't look for no great future in the radio business if you're just getting in it. I, I just don't think you have a great future. Yeah, yeah. The climate has definitely changed. It has definitely changed. Wow. Now, you know, it seems like you've been in radio your whole life. Yeah. What would you be doing if you were not in radio? What do you think you would be doing? Well, <laughs> you know, I don't know. You never thought about it? Well, when I was young, I thought about driving a truck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought about that. But I'm glad I'm, I don't because I I can't stay awake long enough. Uh-oh. You, know, <laughs> you know? And good look, that industry is not doing well right, right now Absolutely. either. Absolutely. They're, they're having some problems. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to be a lawyer. but Now, I, I can see you can being see a lawyer. Yeah. I didn't want to put it in the time to go to law school. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't even put it in the top to go to college. But my friends, when I graduated from high mm -hmm. school, my friends were going to college, and I'm like, I'll see y'all, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, I don't know what I would be doing. Mm -hmm. Something easy, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. Probably you know. TV, if you weren't necessarily radio. Definitely No, you TV. know what? I No, you never wanted to do I no. bet Have you had opportunities to do TV? Yes. I've done television before. Okay, you have. Yeah, when I first came here, I had a, I had a dance show. A dance show. Yeah, I had a dance show on uh, on uh, channel, uh, channel channel twenty twenty four. Kind of like uh, yeah. what is it? Soul Train. Type? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, it was on, and I I did it for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh And uh, what you say? It's not for me. It's not for me, okay. because I was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Now I'm gonna tell you, uh, and Julius Lewis, uh, tried to start, uh, um, a talk show with me and Janine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janine and I did some uh, demos, mm -hmm. and uh, matter of fact, we did a couple a couple of demos of us doing a talk show together what for television. With that? Well, you know, <laughs> my wife was kind of uh, she was kind of an advisor as well, mm -hmm. and she was not that keen on me doing the show, and I was not that keen on it because I was I was not willing to put the work in. And I'm not a television person. I mean, but now I would do television. Mm -hmm. I would do television now because, I'm, you know, my, my, my mind is at a whole nother level. Yeah. You know, if I was no longer on radio, 
then I would try to do, you know, a podcast or a Facebook kind of thing, or try to get, mm-hmm. I would try to be, you know, get me a, a talk show on a local television station. Mm-hmm. You definitely could do yeah. that. Yeah, I'd yeah. give me one of those uh, shows where, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know you don't remember this show because, you, you know, you're too young. Let but me you, see. you ever heard of uh, Morton Downey? Remember him? He get folks on the show and make them make them fight. Yeah. But he would he would get them on the show and start a fight with them. You gonna do one of them shows? Yeah, I would like to get get one of those. <laughs> oh my god, I can see yeah. you. I can see you right in the midst of that, Mister Bobby OJ. No, I would do that. Oh no, wow. I, I, you know, I I I would love to do the do the do the kind of show where I got couples couples on the show oh, and you know okay. they're spilling their guts and I'm, I'm sitting there giving them advice. You know, talking mainly talking to men how they ought to treat their women. That'll be cute. Yeah. Well, that still can happen. Yeah, that yeah. Happen. So I, I, you know, I, I, but you know, mm-hmm. but but right now I'm just I'm just having fun. You having fun? Yeah, I'm just having, having wow. fun. Wow. Um, well, Bobby OJ, thank you so much for coming by the Verbally Effective Podcast, kicking off the new year, this <laughs> 2020, with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yes. How can everyone get in touch with you? Well, they can email me, Bobby OJ at iHeartMedia.com. They can also hit me up on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Bobby OJ, and of course they can listen to the Fun Morning Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, weekday mornings from 6 to 10, WDIA. We're also, when people say to me, you know, no one has said to me recently, <laughs> we don't listen to AM because they said to me, I'm going to be like, damn, man, don't you know we got iHeart, we got HD. Hello, we streaming, yeah, yeah, we streaming. Plus the fact, we, you know, if <laughs> yeah. you have a car that's a 2010 and up, you know, you, you know, most cars now have, have HD. Mm-hmm. I haven't listened to WDIA on the regular AM channel probably in a whole year. You're going right off the app. No, I listen to, well, in my car, mm-hmm. I listen to WDIA on HD. On HD, yeah. And uh, when I'm not in my car and when I'm at the gym or when I'm out walking at Shelby Farms, mm-hmm. I listen on the on the, on the the uh, app. Mm-hmm. When I travel anywhere, you listening. I'm <laughs> driving through Beverly Hills, California <laughs> last year. Uh-huh. Listening to WDIA. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And it's, a, it's a strange thing. I know you, you know you're in me. California driving in your car mm-hmm. with DIA pumped through. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's some crazy mess right there. You dedicated, Bobby. Well, not only that, I'm gonna tell you. I, I mean, not not to knock anybody. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I you know you know when I, yeah, I listen to other people's radio stations, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but when I want to enjoy a radio station, mm-hmm. I listen to WDIA, especially when I'm out of town. Yeah. I got you. I enjoy it as well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And you are indeed a legend. I've learned so much from you in this podcast today. And I just wish you the best. And it looks like you're going to be around a lot more, (laughs) a lot more, (laughs) many more years. And it seems like you're going to transition into television. That's what I say. Well, you know, (laughs) hopefully, name of the game is to stay healthy and stay employed. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mr. Bobby OJ. My guest for episode 101 on the Verbally Effective Podcast.